Welcome to this special colorectal cancer issue of Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. As with all of these programs, we gathered a group of practicing medical oncologists to present real but de-identified cases from their practices to a faculty of clinical investigators, in this case, Drs. Rich Goldberg, Bob Wolf, Axel Grothy, and Jordan Berlin. To begin, Dr. Kurt Sabbath presents a young man with stage 3 colon cancer and a prior diagnosis of morbid obesity, non-insulin-dependent diabetes, and venous insufficiency. The gentleman is a 45-year-old gentleman. He had a one-week history of constipation. His past history is remarkable for non-insulin-dependent diabetes, but he did not have any ocular, renal, or neurologic complications. He had chronic right leg venous insufficiency due to a previous injury, but no associated neuropathy. He presented to the emergency room acutely. A non-contrast CT scan revealed a high-grade obstruction with thickening of the sigmoid colon. He had an emergency colonoscopy, and he was found to have a near-complete obstruction at the sigmoid colon, and a biopsy was positive for adenocarcinoma. The patient underwent an exploratory laparotomy, a divertent colostomy, and resection of the tumor. A Hartman pouch was fastened, and the end was tacked down for a possible future anastomosis. The pathology revealed a 5-centimeter poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma, it was invasive into the muscularis, but not into the pericolic fat. And the pathologist recovered only four nodes, two of which were positive. And that was the point where I had seen him. He was actually a very interesting gentleman. He was the athletic director of a local school. He was a really big guy. He was 386 pounds. He was 72 inches high. His BMI was 49.5, and he had a BSA of 2.96. Now, he was big, and he had played center, football center in college, but still had at least 100-plus extra pounds on him with a big, huge gut. And there were several issues as we saw him, questions that were raised. First was, uh, as we sort of talked about, the issue of the lymph node status. We raised the question of what other treatment we would recommend. In part, he had diabetes and venous insufficiency. One of my big questions was how to deal with his size. What was his lifestyle like and oh, performance he, status? And he what was did he really do? remarkably very active. In addition to being the athletic director, he was the football coach. He would work out with the guys, and although he wouldn't do the tackling, he was not above running around the field with him despite his size. And what was his attitude about this? Was he out on the internet getting information, or did he just want to let you make the decision? Was he involved? No, he was involved. He was not an internet kind of guy, but was clearly active in reasonable health. But at 45, with young children, was really looking at, Doc, do whatever you can to give me the best possible survival. I'm tough. I can deal with things. I'll do what you tell me. A spouse? Oh, yeah. A wife of many years and very involved. Came with him? Absolutely. Did she verbalize her thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, I think they were very much on board with this. And as interesting, he's a fairly prominent member, because we don't live in a large city, he was a fairly prominent member of the community. 
he was at a local school and a number of family members of the kids would come up to me and said, oh, I know you're taking care of Rich. Do whatever you can for him. Um, Don't mess up. <laughs> you know. You better do this one right. <laughs> and actually the timing worked out very well because this is really a pretty active case for us and we have, not, we have yet to initiate treatment. Rich, how would you think about this? Well, the first thing I would do is get him a second opinion to cover your posterior because the community is going to be looking over your shoulder and you want to (laughs) say, you know, this is a consensus management approach. The other thing I would say is the best treatment that we know of for this is Folfox. I get asked all the time, well, should you give Folfox to somebody with non-insulin dependent diabetes? And my answer to that is yes, as long as they don't have active neuropathy. And as long as you listen to them and ask about neuropathy every time you see them. Do you Uh, tend to stop the oxalic quicker in a patient with diabetes? No, because I'm fairly quick to stop oxalic platinum in anybody when they start to get neuropathy. And in part, I'm using the CO7 trial, which only gave 765 milligrams per meter squared of oxalate for the entire flox regimen as compared to more than 1,000 milligrams per meter squared in the mosaic trial. And so in the adjuvant setting, I kind of consider every milligram of oxaliplatin. And, you know, also, obviously, if you do cure this guy, he's a physical guy who is going to probably be more bothered by neuropathy than the average person. In terms of what do you do for dose for somebody like this? Yeah, the doses actually, you know, when you calculate them out, they get kind of on the high side. So has anyone ordered 300 milligrams of oxali as a single dose? I haven't done it yet. <laughs> That's a lot of oxali. But the data more or less shows that you do people harm by reducing dose for weight. And presumably it's because concentration is a function of body size. Having said that, I might try him out at a slightly reduced dose with the first dose just to be sure that he tolerates things okay. I really think that we underutilize the option of graded chemotherapy approaches and that if you're worried about somebody, just give a little less the first time around and then dose escalate to tolerance or to standard dose. But your goal would be to fully dose them? Yes, it would be. Uh, Is there anything in the NCCN guidelines about how to handle these kinds of situations or any other guidelines? Not that I'm aware of. And, you know, every time you do a literature search, when you get somebody who's 500 pounds, the PharmDs at our place always say, you know, you should dose them according to their BSA. So we're out in the non-evidence part of the world, which is a big part of the world. What well, about welcome the... to our world. Yeah, <laughs> welcome, to, welcome to your world is for sure. What about the issue of this man with probably a lot of muscle on him and maybe for the same height and weight, somebody else who doesn't have the muscle, you know, severely obese, a patient with a lot more adipose tissue. Would you say same thing, surface area? Same thing. Good to go? The only thing that would worry me is that when I send the guy down for their CAT scans, I get calls from the radiologist saying, you're going to break our table. And I have broken tables or had my patients break tables before. I want to make a quick point here. If this colonoscope only went to the sigmoid colon and did not go beyond it, the one thing we have to think about is visualizing the remainder of his colon. With a colostomy, that shouldn't be a hard thing to do. We wonder about when to do such a thing if somebody's had a primary anastomosis. My gastroenterologist usually advised that it be at least four weeks old, four to six weeks old before looking. And the reason for the rest of the colon is there is about a 2% risk that he could have a synchronous lesion in the remaining colon. 
You certainly don't want to miss that and give them six months of adjuvant therapy and then have to deal with a second cancer. So number one is he needs the rest of his colon visualized. I don't know the best timing for that. Some people would argue, well, we'll do it after the adjuvant therapy. I usually like to know before somebody gets started what the remainder of the colon looks like because there is a risk that he could have synchronous disease and that might trigger things like HNPCC and you know there are a number of things that you would think about under those circumstances. So that's number one. Number two is when do you think about reversing this Hartman? You know if he says God I gotta get rid of this I wouldn't have an argument with three months of adjuvant, little break for a reversal, three more months I will tell you that I probably, what I usually do in my practice is make a slight dose adjustment downward, but you're really picking a number out of the air. You're going to say, we're going to give you pretty close to what we think is right dose, and you go from there. And if he does start to have problems, better that he gets, you know, some oxali coursing through his body than none at all. And I think you could make adjustments over time in terms of how much he actually gets. He may be at higher risk for peripheral neuropathy. I, you know, of 12 cycles, I like to get at least eight in. And I tell my patients, it'd be nice if we got eight in. That's four months. That's a pretty good amount of therapy. If I can get 10 in, I'm even happier. I almost never get 12 into people. If I get anywhere between eight and 10 in, I'm pretty happy. I usually give them 5-FU Lucavorin for the last few cycles without the oxali. I don't just stop there. I usually continue the 5-FU Lucavorin for the last couple of cycles. Neil, could I just ask, both of you seem to think that the loxetine neurotoxicity is a reasonable endpoint to stop the drug. Is that correct in the adjuvant setting? So in the Mosaic trial, how many patients got 9 cycles out of 12? Do we know that data? I mean, we know that in the breast adjuvant data, you know, what percentage get what? I think they got 80 to 85% of intended doses, so most people, I think, dropped off the last couple. What fraction of your patients get through the entire 12 cycles? Uh, It's pretty darn rare. I rarely have a patient get through 12. I mean, you occasionally get sort of a 40-year-old who's sort of darn the torpedoes type of thing. The other thing I'll mention in the metastatic setting, and maybe Rich could comment as the last point, is... About the time the neuropathy is getting to the point where you're thinking about quitting it in the metastatic setting is about the time the drug has given you what it's going to give you. There are some exceptions that I'm personally very interested in these chemo-free intervals, not necessarily completely chemo-free, but this idea of dropping out oxali and going back to it. I think that's an attractive strategy. It would be great to have more molecular agents that give us a sort of a cytostatic period, and then you can hit people later with more cytotoxic pop. But in the case of oxali, it's by the time the neuropathy is getting to the point of causing problems, it's usually the time you've milked that cow as far as you can. Well, you know, in looking at the patients on the 9741 study, there were some patients that got 25 cycles of Folfox and never got neuropathy. And I have seen people that have gone a really long time and seem to have continued to get benefit from it. So when I stop it, I keep it in mind to restart at a later date. What I try and do is push that date as far as I can in hopes that by the time I give it again, the neuropathy is recovered. I don't think it's useful to reduce the dose because I don't think that matters. You end up giving one more or two more doses and then 
you have to stop anyway. And so, you know, the one thing that I see in my consultative practice for phase one patients that concerns me is I think people sometimes forget that they stop for toxicity, not progression. And I have had people respond beautifully to reintroduction of Folfox. Even people who have progressed on Folfox, and then two years later, they're coming back to me looking for something else, and I've had some very satisfying responses. What's the least interval? On. Six months a year? What would be the least amount of time that you'd be willing to have somebody off Oxali before reintroducing it? I don't think there is a least amount of time. I think it would depend on the neuropathy issues and whether or not they progressed. You if know. somebody progressed on it. Okay, somebody progressed, I probably would want to see a year, a year. Uh, between, but that's an arbitrary number picked out of the air. What about the issue of the nodes? Yeah, I mean, I was very interested to hear about the study that you did. In fact, I'm writing myself a note that I want the surgical residents to go back and actually do a retrospective trial. I work at two different hospitals. You mean to see what kind of nodes are in your hospital? Yeah, that'd be good. And it's interesting because I work at two different hospitals, one where pathology is very strong, and the head of pathology, if they don't come out with 12 nodes, he says to the guys, you go back there and you keep digging until you get them, and I don't care how long it takes you. Whereas the other hospital, the pathology is much weaker, and it is a constant struggle to get an adequate nodal yield. So where was he operating on? Unfortunately, he was operated at the hospital where they do fewer. But by hearing about that, and the point of having the residents do the study is this. Prove that, in fact, the nodal yield at each place is different, that one is suboptimal, and that provides the data to really force the pathologists and put their feet to the fire. Publish it in your local newspaper. Maybe (laughs) This is is likely going to be a quality indicator in the future. Yes, it is is. actually now. It is 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 now. It is coming. So that's an important point. I'm not here to defend anybody, but I will say this was essentially an emergent situation. Yeah. Unprepped bowel. Yeah. Go in, (laughs) get it out. And under those circumstances, I'm not saying they had to rush, but it doesn't surprise me that they, I mean, hopefully they did get adequate mesentery, but it was unprepped bowel. They probably said, look, we got to get this thing out of here. And it is a team effort. I mean, this is not just about the surgeon, but the surgeon's got to give an adequate specimen, but it is about the pathologist as well. But it's not just about the pathologist. I mean, we have seen patients at our institution who've had what I call a boutique colectomy where there simply is not an adequate mesenteric pedicle removed with the tumor. And we've seen people recur in those nodal groups within the mesentery. You know, we think of the pathology of these guys down in the labs and, you know, buried in there or whatever and don't really know, maybe have the kind of clinical input they need. Do they know that if they don't get 12 nodes, this patient's going to get chemo. This is a difference between getting chemo or not in many situations. It's a very easy thing for anybody to understand the human impact of that. Well, I mean, do they go to your tumor boards? Yes, they do, and we bring it up. And you tell them that. Yeah, we say, you know, this is what we consider to be the standard. And the one advantage of being in two different hospitals is the other guys present their cases routinely, 12, 15, 18 nodes. I think the other point to make, though, is Even in stage 3 disease where patients are getting adjuvant therapy, harvesting 12 or more improves your survival. So it's not just about accurate staging. To me, it's about tumor debulking and really getting down to least microscopic metastatic disease that you can work on 
for your agents to be effective. And I guess also giving some accurate numbers to the patient, two out of four, does that translate into 14 out of 28 or two out of 30? You know, Rich, this guy has two out of four positive notes. You know, from my perspective, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't change your therapy. Not, yeah, uh, just more the prognosis. You know, or, so they, you know, one of the questions is, is lymphadenectomy therapeutic? And we don't really know the answer to that, but I don't think anybody's going to say, well, let's go in and get more nodes. <laughs> for this guy.